welcome to the A-Push Files, the audio archive for honors history students at Boston Spa High School. For today's file, I'll be sharing a program posted by the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History as part of their Advanced Placement History Test Prep series. This program focuses on time period number three, covering 1754 to 1800. For a direct link to the presentation and source citations, please visit my show notes. Welcome to class and happy Halloween. As a reminder, my name is Cassidy. We decided to get festive today, so here I am on my cat mask. Um, we're just going to go over and review some tech stuff real quick. So if you want to ask a question, as always, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Keep it on full screen throughout the program. And if you want to chat, you can uh, select using the drop down menu, whether uh, it'll go to all attendees or just panelists. Please make sure your name is correct. And we're going to keep you muted and your videos off for the class. Keep your commentary appropriate and let's just jump into it. There! Ha -ha. Hi everyone, happy Halloween. Sorry, I couldn't get my video started. I wanted to surprise you. Here we go. Of course, and any chance I get to bring this outfit out, I do. Um, although my seventh grade son took one look at me and said, mommy look ridiculous. I was like, I know, I know, but I can't help it. It's Halloween and I know it's a little weird one this year, but um, any chance I get to look ridiculous, I take. So period three fits in well with my costume, 1754 to 1800. So we're gonna go through a little review of some topics today, go over some of the main things that we tend to see on the national exam. We'll give you guys some strategies. Um, we'll save some time for questions and answers at the end. So let's start with the question that I always like to start with, which is what are these bookend dates and what do they mean? Why don't you, let's go with 1754. Why don't you throw that in the chat? Let's start there. Why does this unit start in 1754? Oh, Ava likes my costume. Thanks, Ava. At least I get one. At least I get one. 1754. Why does this unit start? Remember, there's always a reason. <gasps> Joseph got it. So did Jack and Michael. Yep, here they come. Beginning of the French and Indian War, which is also called the Seven Years' War because it was really our first world war in the modern sense of the word. So very good. Yes, yes, that's why I'm dressed up. <laughs> Sharon just said, oh, I forgot it was Halloween. She's like, why are you wearing that weird outfit? Uh, so very good. French and Indian War, AKA Seven Years War. How about 1800? Now this one's a little different. It's not because it's a nice round number as it would seem. End of Adam's presidency, Felix Nice Reese, the election of 1800, which is a pivotal moment and pretty timely considering we are on the eve, just a few days away of a presidential election. Very, very good. Yep, election of 1800, Thomas Jefferson. Hugh Hamilton, says Kurt. Oh, you're gonna be in for a treat. And I'm sorry, not sorry, if you're not a Hamilton fan because I put Hamilton all in this presentation today. So yes, excellent. All right, so good, good, good. So now that we know the bookend dates, we know why it started in 1754, we know why it ended in 1800. Um, let's, let's do a little Q&A, well, a little chat time. In the chat box, why don't you answer this question? Let's go first with, what is one question you have about period three? So when you're thinking about these years, what's one thing that you're like, I just don't really get, you know, like, I know what my students say to this. I want to see what you all say to this. Why did Hamilton like the national debt? Good question. What happens? I was honest. I appreciate that. 
migration. Mm-hmm. My students are always like, XYZ affair? What is this? Like, they're always a little confused on what happens during the Adams presidency, how European conflicts spread to the US. Ooh, development of the Republicans and the Federalists. That's a good one. How significant are battles? Um, answer, not as much, not really on the national test, but we still want to think cause and effect, progression. What's the cause of the French Indian War? Articles of Confederation, that's a good one. I just had my students do an LEQ on that. Um, how the constitution was a turning point based on the articles. Difference between state and federal power. All right. How come they come to hate George Washington at the end of his term? Oh, I don't know that they really hated him. I mean, a lot of people wanted him to keep going. They would have been quite happy if he was a, a king. A lot of people wanted him to. He, didn't, he was very reluctant on the power, and we'll talk about that. Why did patriots propose freedom for all, but not really? Ooh, Isabel, that's a good question. I talk a lot about that. Freedom is um, sometimes subjective, and we'll talk about the role that freedom played here. Good. How about what do you find most interesting about this period, 1754 to 1800? What's your favorite thing to talk about? What's your favorite thing? Let's see what we got. You could just put that in the chat. Hamilton, state expansion, making of the Constitution. I love that too. That's my jam. French and Indian War. Yeah, I'm not really sure I need review. That's okay. Oh, somebody said the Quasar War. Okay, I never get many votes for that. The Constitution Day is Liv's birthday. That's fun. September 17th, in case you don't know. How people went from supporting Britain to fighting them when many still liked Britain. Yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? We'll get into that too. Federalist, anti-federalist, solitary neglect, whiskey rebellion, women's roles in the American Revolution. That's cool. They played quite a big role behind the scenes, especially the spy network in New York, which is kind of fun. Good, okay, we got a wide variety there. Um, we will try to get through all of that and save some time for questions. So just a reminder, I like to give a little shout out to the Guild Illuminate Push website. Um, we are in period three. Period three is the first one that is fair game for your DBQ, the document-based question. It's gonna be something from periods three to eight. Um, now, within the past few years, they did ask one on the American Revolution. I believe it was 2017. So I always tell, tell my students, you don't typically see the same topic two years in a row or even every other year, right? Like there's a lot of US history to go from. So, but you never know and you wanna be ready for it just in case. And of course, there's a lot more to this period than just to the revolution. There's a lot more going on and that's what we're gonna break down. All right, yes, it begins my Hamilton references. So period three, 12% of the course. And so you can expect the exam to reflect that in some way, shape or form. Your teachers are told to spend about 12% of time on period three. So the questions of the day today, I always think is freedom for whom and freedom from whom? And how can we challenge assumptions of the American Revolution by examining primary sources? So primary sources are, again, great things to review, um, practice those skills of close reading, of being able to analyze, um, understand historical context, understand perspective and point of view, because you're gonna see primary sources in that multiple choice. And then also potentially, in that short answer and definitely in that DBQ. So we wanna make sure we expose ourselves to primary sources as much as we can. So when we're looking at period three, I think a good way to think about this is what did the revolution change and what did it not change? And that's the question I kind of like to pose. Um, there's a lot of unfinished business by 1800, right? We're, we're not done yet, but what we have done is set a foundation and a framework to get to these enlightenment ideals of freedom and equality for all. We have to remember that even in that moment when they're talking about 
inalienable rights. There's certain groups that they're not considering part of that, right? So this right here, Phyllis Wheatley, um, tremendous writer and poet during this era. And um, we see other pictures here. This is George Washington crossing the Delaware. And then of course, the Articles of Confederation are gonna be a nice start, but they're not gonna be done. I mean, there's, there's a long way to go. I'm trying to move my screen here so you can see me. I don't get my face out of the way. There we go. So you wanna think about the causes and effects of the revolution and who's in, who's out and how it's gonna take us a while to live up to some of these ideals. That's a good way to kind of think about as we start this year. So let's, uh, let's get into why 1754. And as many of you said, this is the beginning of the Seven Years War, AKA the French and Indian War. And so with any war, you need to think less about battles. Somebody had that question, I can't remember who it was, but you're rarely gonna get asked battles on the national test. I cannot get my face out of the way. Here, I'm just gonna do that. There, get my face out of the way. Um, rarely does the national test ask about a battle, unless it has some kind of a tie to something politically or socially, right? So this is where my military historians in the room get sad and they're like, but I wanna talk about how this general took four steps here and then moved this troop. I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you. You're not gonna see that kind of stuff. But what you do wanna think is about cause and effect. You wanna think general strategies. You want to think where does the war start where does it move where does it end and why does that happen so with the french and indian war we have to remember first of all everybody in this particular all the europeans i should say over here were fighting for the british okay so they're actually fighting for the british there's no one i should say very few people in 1754 talking about breaking away from england people if you said that out loud people think you were crazy crazy because you know what as we mentioned last week, we we're talking about colonial America. The British colonists living over here have a pretty good deal, not to downplay the struggles that they have. But when we're talking about rights and freedoms, remember England has a much more limited monarchy than say France during this time. And so especially after that glorious revolution, that English Bill of Rights in 1689, we see the British colonists get used to being British which by the way, in that moment in time is pretty darn good, isn't it? You're part of one of the biggest empires, strongest empires, you got a great Navy. It's good to be British. I always compare them to, again, I'm gonna speak baseball here because that's my language. I compare them to the New York Yankees. One of my Yankee fans, you know, you know. Or maybe we should say Dodgers after this week. Shout out to the Dodgers for winning the World Series. I would say that they're the National League equivalent. They're the team that tends to be the most powerful, has the most money, right? A lot of prestige. If you hate them, it's just because they're good says the girl with the small market team from Cleveland. Um, so it's good to be British and they're having quite a bit of freedoms. Salutary neglect. We introduced that last week. We're going to bring it back. Salutary neglect. The British have rules. It's not that they don't have rules for their empire. They have the Navigation Acts of 1650. They have the Iron and Wool Acts. But it's harder for them to enforce it sometimes. It's easier to just kind of let it go. They know the colonists are smuggling with the, the, the Dutch. They're not dumb, they know that. But you know what? The bottom line's still pretty good. They're pulling a profit. So they're looking okay. When this is over, now they're gonna have tremendous amount of debt from the war and also a bigger empire to administer. So now they're gonna end salutary neglect. So we look at the causes of the French and Indian War. We also see, we go back to our discussion last week. We see this is a long time coming. Okay, that the French and the, and the British have been competing 
for control of North America, specifically control of the Ohio River Valley, where the fur trade is very, very important. So we're talking present day Pittsburgh, okay, which used to be called Fort Duquesne, Duquesne University still there. That's a French term. So that's really where they're competing over. Other causes, you could say this is part of a bigger conflict. That's a worldwide conflict kind of based on the balance of power in Europe with the War of Austrian Secession and some things that are happening over there. Now, effects, aside from the end of salutary neglect, let's take a look at the effects. Let's look at this. Here's pre-war boundaries. Here's post-war boundaries. So you might have an image like this in your textbook. You might see something like this, even in a stimulus-based multiple choice. What's the problem you might see? I mean, because this looks pretty good, right, for the British. What might be the problems that are going to come out? Why don't you throw something in the chat? Let me see what you got here. Looking at these two images. Oh, Felix, nice. Oh, Shane's a Mets fan. I'm sorry, Shane. I feel you. I'm a Cleveland fan. It's hard. Um, Native American conflicts, too much land to manage, Isabella says. Yep, France got kicked out. Uh-huh. And they're going to be a little bitter, aren't they? More land, more Indians, more problems. Yep, yep, because the Native Americans are none too pleased, especially the ones that sided with the French, right? Especially like the Algonquins. I'll give the example of the Algonquins. So what happens in the French anymore is it definitely divides indigenous peoples over here. They have to pick a side, right? And I mean, this is, again, we're looking, there's not really a great option here. I mean, obviously the Native American nations would love full, complete sovereignty like it was before the Europeans got here. There, I think a lot of them are realizing that that's not going to be a total possibility right now. So they're trying to say, what's going to be best for my group? And the Iroquois are going to side with the British. Algonquins are going to side with the French. Once the French lose, now the Algonquins are like, uh-oh. <laughs> they're actually going to fight on the British side, the American Revolution, and, and try to do what is best in that moment for them. And so the war definitely divides Indigenous peoples over here and makes it harder for them, especially when this war is over. Because now, like a lot of you are saying here, now the British, look at all this land they get, you guys. Look at that. That's huge. I mean, the French essentially lose all their North American territories. They're going to hang on tenuously to a few in the Caribbean, including Haiti. Um, and, and we'll see where that's going to go. You guys know where that's going in 1804. We'll save that later. But this is going to make also France is going to be stinging from this. They're going to be a little upset at England. And we want to file that away for when we talk about what happens during the revolution. So it's a lot more land, which will lead to increased conflicts, especially on the frontier. Now, when we say frontier, we mean places like where I am right now, Ohio, Indiana, right across this proclamation line, all right, dear. So Pontiac's Rebellion, someone mentioned, is when we saw Pontiac lead an uprising against the settlers that they said were squatting and breaking treaties. And coming. so from Pontiac's perspective, this is 100% defensive. And so what starts to happen is we're really going to see 1763 being a turning point in a lot of ways. It's the year the French anymore ends, but it's also the year salutary neglect ends. And now the British are like, hey, so remember all those laws we had that like, you know, we've been ignoring because you've been profitable. Um, we need to enforce those and also add some more. So this is where the colonists are going to go, wait, what, what, you can't do that, right? This is where when we look at it from the British perspective, the colonists do sound a little bit whiny, don't they? They, they want to be British. They want all the protections and the, all the good stuff that being British comes with in 1763, but they want to go west of that line. They want to, and they're upset. When King George passes, well, I should say when Parliament passes, but King George is pushing for this proclamation line, his attitude is, 
much like in the musical. Look, I am doing this for you, you ungrateful children. Like, you're telling me you're getting attacked on the frontier. So here's a thought, don't go there, right? Like, I'm gonna draw this line, stay east of the mountains because I don't have the money to send more troops to protect you. And the colonists don't take that as a paternalistic, well, they don't take that as a helpful thing. They resent this paternalistic attitude. They're like, how dare you tell us where we can and can't go, right? So this is the, I think, some of the miscommunications that we're gonna see between the colonists and the crown that are only gonna grow and grow and grow. So yes, the proclamation 1763, let's take a quick peek at it from the GLI vault. Well, they'll push this uh, out to you in the chat because I know you guys can't click on this here, but here it is. France surrendered Canada and much of the Ohio and Mississippi valleys, two thirds of Eastern North America to England. And the proclamation, quote, preserved to the said Indians, the lands west of the Appalachian Mountains and forbade white settlement, okay? Also trying to, to um, regulate trade on the frontier. And so this is where the colonists are going to view this in a much different light than, than the British. I mean, King George does this. He thinks he's doing this to really help the colonists. And he thinks, oh, well, they're complaining. So I'll pass this and they won't complain anymore. This is the moment where things really start, isn't it? So this is the moment we look back on and say, okay, we're still, I mean, we're still 13 years away from the Declaration of Independence, my friends, but this is the point where I think we're starting to get to that point of no return. And it's gonna be a slow, steady build over the next few years. So here we go, time for taxes. All right, will you need to know all of these on the national test? Probably not. Because remember that there's only 55 stimulus-based multiple choice questions. What they often will do is pick maybe one of these as your stimulus and have a couple of questions either about that or connecting it to other times. So it's still good, again, as always, to think cause and effect change over time. I like to, with my students, I like to say, let's, let's go from 1763 to Lexington and Concord. Let's go cause and effect. Let's see how every action has an equal opposite reaction. Let's see how the colonists are gonna view things very differently than the crown will. And they're gonna push back and the crown will push back and it's sort of this teetering seesaw. So the Stamp Act is big. Um, I always tell my students the Stamp Act is essentially a tax today. It would be a tax on all incoming and outgoing text messages. Whew, I don't know if you've been, ever been in a group chat gone wild, you put your phone down for like 17 minutes and you pick up your phone, there's like 182 messages. You ever been in one of those? You're like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Can you imagine, like if it was a 10 cent tax on incoming and outgoing text messages, that doesn't sound bad. Until you start looking at how many texts you get in a day or a week, right? That the colonists are avid readers. This is how they communicate. And this is the thing about the Stamp Act. It's a direct tax that everybody felt whether you were wealthy, whether you were middle-class, working-class, or whether you were poor, everybody felt it. Some of the other taxes like the sugar tax are a little more indirect or taxing sugar, which is not affecting everybody in the same way. Stamp Act is gonna get a huge backlash because that one hurts everyone, right? Everybody feels it and they feel it instantly. So this is where we get that argument of virtual versus actual representation. Um, here's, here's where the king's like, oh, wait a second. Um, you say you're British, right? And the colonists are like, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, we're still British, we're still British. And so the king's attitude is, well, when the colonists are saying no taxation without representation, king flips it. He flips it, watch how he does this. He Jedi mind tricks the colonists. He goes, oh, well, if you're as British as you say you are, then all the people in parliament are British and therefore they speak for you. Boom. Mic drop, right? He's like, see, you are represented. 
And the colonists kind of are like, well, no, 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 that's not what I mean. Like, yes, we're British, but we have different needs over here, right? There are things we deal with here, say, attacks from the Indians on the frontier. We're dealing with that, that you're not. So we should have somebody in parliament. The king's like, what is it though? Are you British or are you not? So virtual versus actual, the colonists wanted actual representation. The crown is gonna to continue to push for um, their idea, which is you already are virtually represented. So I have some great primary sources on the Stamp Act that I usually share with my students um, on that perspective. And again, when we look at it from that way, the colonists do sound, dare I say it, a little bit whiny, you know, just a little bit. We look at some of these primary sources. Um, the king's like, if you're as British as you say you are, you should be proud to pay these taxes and you already are represented. Colonists don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear, and you can see the influence of the Enlightenment creeping in here as we move on this list of taxes and we see push and backlash, right? Especially with that Boston massacre. That's a big moment. That's a big moment. And in the, the Gilder Lerman vault, I got a chance to see this up close, you guys. It was so cool. Here, let me show you. They actually have this engraving. Paul Revere's engraving of the Bloody Massacre, okay, where you can see five civilians were killed, which we always like to have a conversation in my class on what constitutes a massacre, right? The British definitely would not have called this the Boston Massacre. That's a careful choice of words by Paul Revere. Um, and even look, if can we zoom in here? Yeah, take a look at this. Look at their faces. Can you see the sneers? Can you see the smiles? on their faces, this is all very deliberate. This is all very deliberate. And so this is another moment. Of course, Crispus Attucks is one of the people who's killed, um, showing again, the African-American influence throughout, from day one, they're playing a role in our history and an active role. And we'll see that as we get to the, the war too. So this is gonna be a big in, increase in tension, but neither side wants a war in 1770, right? So we'll see a step back, we'll see a step back but then it intensifies. It intensifies as we get to the Gatsby Affair and then of course the Boston Tea Party. Boston is the troublemaker central, right? That is what really is the center of today. We'd use the word insurgency. Boston is where the troublemakers were. They felt the taxes pretty, pretty strongly because of, of the shipping and trade that is such a big part of that city. So that's really where the resistance is gonna be strong. This is why the war is really gonna start in and around Boston. Um, and then of course the coercive, AKA intolerable blacks, were King George's way of really trying to scare and shame, I think, the, the Massachusetts Bay and, and Boston into um, submission. And if anything, it had the opposite reaction. This is where we see our first Congress form. Now, those saying we should break away aren't just a fringe group. They're starting to gain some mainstream. Although, as somebody mentioned, I forget, um, we do know that even throughout the war, there's still quite a few people who either are rooting for England or just don't care. They're this great group in the middle that are like, mm, maybe they live in the frontier, right? And they're like, I, I, don't I don't care. I just wanna raise my family. I don't wanna worry about a war, right? That's gonna be the middle group um, that John Adams will talk a lot about later about. They, they lost the great middle group of Americans. That's the group that became throughout the course of the war into the Patriot side for various reasons. So here's like what I put there, Captain Obvious for you. They've already become something else, right? They've already. So Lexington and Concord, the second Continental Congress is formed. Lexington and Concord, where the first shots are fired, April 19th, 1775. Notice though, still a full year away from the Declaration of Independence. What does that tell us? They're still hoping, aren't they? Just still like, can we, can we still be British though? <laughs> can, can you just give us all the breaks we want? But can we still work this out? We have that olive branch petition. 
Of course, the king doesn't even look at it. They've reached the point of no return. And this is what Thomas Paine is going to be saying in Common Sense. And other pamphlets too. You might get a different Thomas Paine pamphlet because they may go, we know you know Common Sense. Can you read something else from him? So Thomas Paine is using these Enlightenment ideas of the right to revolution, the social contract, right? Natural rights, heavily influenced in those documents. And that is, he's saying what we already know. They already are something else. They have been for a while. They're just having a hard time reconciling that some more than others, right? Some more than others. So this is the point of no return. This is it, this is the point of no return. Um, so the actual war, young, scrappy and hungry, Quick brain dump, let's talk about the actual war. What do you remember about the American Revolution? Anything that comes to mind between 1776, 1783, let's, let's see what you got. Saratoga, yep. France was involved, uh-huh. The Americans struggled in the beginning, yes. Battle of Yorktown, Washington. Americans were underdogs, mm-hmm. Battle of, I see Brooklyn Hill, New York plays a huge role, yep, George Washington, fights in New York and loses badly. He doesn't have the greatest track record as a general. That's just the truth. Um, but that's his strength, I would argue. I, I, was, I jokingly usually compare him to whoever, this doesn't work this year, but whoever the coach of the Cleveland Browns is. I say, doesn't have a whole lot to work with, right? It's amazing he's able to compete with what he has. So Washington as a leader um, is gonna be pretty amazing. No one thought the Americans were gonna win. Uh-huh, smallpox, yes. Very good, winter at Valley Forge. Tories are only 20%, that's true, yeah. Yeah, roughly a third, it's hard to tell. The ghost ship of Brooklyn, ooh. I think we got some New York people in the house. Looks like you guys know quite a bit about New York's role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Okay, I'm seeing lots of good stuff coming here. So again, you're not gonna get asked about battles per se, not as much, but I would think general strategy. And I would think specifically about Washington as a leader, what he's able to do here, because as some of you mentioned, the American colonists were complete underdogs. Um, they're out, man, out, gun. Uh, I'm sorry, I need to stop. Uh, more Hamilton. The American Revolution begins in New England and Boston, the center of the insurgency, moves to the middle colonies, and really ends in Yorktown as an upset victory. And there's a lot going in there, isn't there? And it's, here's where we say, because the French are a little bitter, a little angry about what happened in the French and Indian War they're going to play a large role, especially after Saratoga. They're waiting, they're waiting until the Americans get a decisive victory. They don't, they don't count Trenton and Princeton on, on Christmas Eve. They're like, eh, you got a little lucky on that one, right? Saratoga is a decisive enough victory that they will officially jump in. And now once the French open that door, we'll see other countries jump in too, Spain. All right, we get Baron von Steuben from Prussia coming over and training Washington's troops and instilling that sense in them of what it's like to be a fighter, right? We see um, General Pulaski of Poland coming over and Catherine the Great forms, the, forms like a group of all these European. So this is where I always tell my students, is it because all these countries stand for the ideals of liberty and equal? Don't be fooled, right? They're getting involved because they hate England. They see a chance to hurt England, their rival, right? And that's why as soon as this war is over, a lot of them are gonna be like, whoop, we're out, you're on your own. But it plays a huge role, and Lafayette, of course, plays a huge role in turning the tide of the war, because as some of you mentioned, it wasn't going very well in the beginning. New York City was not so good, disaster, right? Major smallpox outbreak, it falls to the British. Um, it's not going well in the beginning. So. Washington's leadership is, I, I always say, does play a huge role in 
turning the tide and and running the spy network, which is New York City. That's one of my favorite side stories here. Uh, so I could, we could spend a lot more time on the revolution because it's one of my favorites, but I know it's not the only thing in this period. So I'm gonna keep going. That's the kinds of things though that they tend to focus on. Not as much on individual battles. Okay, not as much on that. Think general strategy, think cause and effect. That's what you really wanna focus on when we're going through the war. Okay, winning is easy, governing's harder. I just can't stop with the Hamiltons. Um, so let's talk about what comes next. Ooh, ah, what did I click on? Oh, I clicked on a primary source. Hold on, I'm giving away my, giving away my story here. Let me go back. Sorry, folks. I make, I make a lot of side effects when I'm e-teaching. E All right, what problems plagued the new United States from 1783, which is when that treaty is signed, even though the fighting stopped in 81, the Treaty of Paris is signed in 1783 to 1787. Why don't you throw that in the chat? Can you think of um, just any problems that they're facing right after the war? Let me see if we got No governing body that's federal, yeah. She's rebellion, nice Isabella, we're gonna talk about that, huh? Taxes, a lot of debt, a lot of debt. Articles of Confederation, Michael, you're right. Just, they're like too weak, Hector said it too, uh-huh. They're like a nice first try. And I think they're reflected of the fear of monarchy. So they almost go too much the other way. Society of the Cincinnati, nice. That's a good one. That one rarely gets any, any notice. Economic conditions, uh-huh. Foreign disputes, lack of a national unity, very good. Good, good, good. Yeah, there's a lot. We almost fall apart in these first four years. No way, I mean, it's not going well. This is not going well. So inflation is huge. And this is one that the British are gonna flood um, the brand new US with cheaply made goods and trying, that's gonna be really hard for the merchants to compete. Many of you mentioned weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation. They're a nice first try, but they're just not gonna be enough. Um, there's no power to tax. There's no executive branch to speak of. Um, technically there is a president. A lot of my students like to be like, but there were six presidents before Washington. Yes, but I would argue it's apples to oranges. It's not the same thing at all. Um, this is a president in name only with no power. And there's no power to tax. So that's a big problem because they can't, colonies are supposed to, states, sorry, we're not colonies more. States are supposed to just pay taxes out of the goodness of their heart. You can expect, you can imagine how well that was going. Things are rough, things are rough. And Shays' Rebellion is really the wake-up call. So Daniel Shays in Massachusetts, Western Massachusetts, so here's a little bit of that back country, right, away from the coast, feeling as they have for a while, that they are disregarded, that people are not listening to them. Daniel Shays is an American Revolution veteran. He's waiting on his payment. And his payment's supposed to come. His payment's not coming. Why is the payment not coming? No power to tax, right? So he's about to lose his farm. And he's really upset um, because he's like, wait a second, I put my life on the line for this country and you're gonna take my farm away, you're gonna foreclose my farm? That ain't right. So he starts to get these debtor farmers who are in similar situations and goes, marches his way all the way to Boston. And so this exposes a lot of things. Number one, there's no federal government, so to speak. Actually, Boston had to hire a lot of wealthy Bostonian merchants, kind of hired a private army to help put him down. Number two, he's pretty popular. A lot of people are like, he's right. This isn't right. And the fact that there's no power to tax is really, really huge. That's going to be a big one. Um, so, yeah, it's a big wake-up call. That is what makes them come to Philadelphia in 1787. Uh, I'm so sorry that my dog is going bananas. I'm going to try to quickly get someone to help me out with that. Help. I'm so sorry. 
Okay. <laughs> Sorry, he's, he's very excitable. So here in George Washington on Shays in the upcoming Constitutional Convention, this is another one from the Guild of Women Voters. Got to give a quick shout out because they have such cool stuff here. And this is actually Washington talking about Shays' Rebellion. And you could see how Shays' Rebellion was really kind of like the spark that is pushing them to Philadelphia in 1787. And of course, at first, they are meaning to amend the articles. It becomes pretty apparent that they need to just scrap them and start new. And that's what they're going to do throughout that summer of 1787. And, um, and that's where they're really going to try to come up with how do we have a democracy, but at the same time, um, not have anarchy, right? They're just terrified of having anarchy. And that's going to be something that they're going to put in some buffers in the Constitution. Um, trying to deal with my dog. Please. I'm so sorry, he's barking. I will figure out a better play with that for next week. All right, here we go. In Philadelphia, they meet in that summer of 1787 and they meet for like four or five months, right? From May all the way to September 17th. And this is where they're having these compromises. And you see, it's a tightrope between having democracy, but being afraid of the masses. And this is something that we're gonna see as a play throughout, throughout those four or five months. So they're gonna have compromises made in there. And some of these compromises today we look at them and we're like, that's yeah, pretty awful, right? Like for instance, the three-fifths compromise, which is, they were trying to solve the question of representation um, more than touching the issue with slavery. And I actually have my students look at Madison's notes. I have my students read Madison's notes um, that we, this is the only record we really have what went on behind those closed doors. Although it's important to note that they are still from Madison's perspective. So you want to always consider that context in play when he's writing those words. But have my students look at where slavery came up and the few voices, few, they were there though, that were saying slavery is inconsistent with the constitution and we should not have it here. And then the instant reaction from some of the representatives saying, if you touch slavery, we will walk out. We will leave, we will take our ball and we will go home. And so I think there was a sense that they knew it was a problem right? But they're going to pump the football. They're going to pump the football. How are they going to do that? They're going to put things in here that will allow them to sign it in this moment and hope that they can deal with it later. For instance, banning the slave trade after 1808. Seems rather arbitrary, right? 20, 19 years later. They're like, yeah, we'll just ban that later. Um, it's, a, it's a picking and choosing. And we want to recognize that. We want to recognize that, that even in that moment, some of them didn't know it was wrong. Okay, because what I always say when we talk about, especially we talk about slavery, is we want to be careful by saying, when, when sometimes we'll hear the argument that, well, it was a different time, right? Well, it was a different time and they didn't know. Primary sources prove that they knew, 100% that they knew it was wrong. We look at the words of Luther Martin from Maryland and we'll see. Um, there were people, Gouverneur Morris is another one that comes to mind, that were, that were speaking out against slavery in that moment. And, and it's not they didn't know, right? And they all knew it was divisive. But I think they didn't know in that moment how to come up with a solution quickly. And for them, the quickly is going to be more important than the solution. And that's important to recognize, right? And so on the last day of the convention, they come up with the Virginia, New Jersey plan, right? The Great Compromise, which gives us our current situation. Where we have the House and we have the Senate and right, one's based on representation, one's based on population. These are all give and takes. These are all give and takes, but they have a fear of too much democracy. And how do we know that? They're not gonna let us vote for our senators in that original draft of the constitution, are they? 
They're not. We don't get to vote for our senators until much later with the 17th Amendment. Um, and so that's what we see there. And Benjamin Franklin gives a speech on the last day. He's 81 years old. Madison writes a speech and he says, look, I know this isn't perfect, but it is, I'm, I'm astonished at how close it is to perfect considering that we are all flawed people. And I think it will astonish our enemies to see that we're, we're coming together. And I urge you, he kind of says, do this for me. You know, he's 81. This is the guy who wrote the Albany Plan of Union. He's been there, he's been there before some of them were born. And he almost kind of gives him this like grandpa, like do this for me speech. And it's enough to get enough members to sign it. Now, a couple don't, there's a couple holdouts. George Mason holding out, biggest issue for him. There's no bill of rights. He felt like that's a step back, right? So, but I love when Franklin and Madison ends his notes by saying, you know, I've been staring at the sun in this chair. George Washington is uh, sitting in his chair the whole time, basically saying nothing, just supervising. Can you see there's a, there's a sun in there? And Franklin says, I've been staring at this chair and all the time looking at that sun going, I wonder if it's a rising or a setting sun. And as they were all signing the document, he said, now I know it is rising and not setting. It's a new beginning, right? Is it perfect? Far from it. It's gonna take a while for us to get to that more perfect union. Okay, we're not done in 1787, that's important. And we'll see the Federalist Papers are written to convince the people of the state of New York um, to, because they're gonna be the last state. Um, they're gonna be the last state to actually ratify and make it go into play. Although we should say, shout out to Rhode Island, any Rhode Islanders in the house, you guys are always causing trouble. Rhode Island held out the last because of course they did, right? That's just so Rhode Island, that's on brand for you. Um, so now we have the constitution and it sets up an executive branch. And now here's where we get to kind of the last part of, of period three. Quick brain dump. Let's go from 1789 to 1801. We're creeping a little, but here, but what's going on in Europe and how did it affect the United States? Think about it. This is a little world history here. Throw it in the chat, let me see. French Revolution. Yes, tension, uh-huh. What else? As we approach like 1800, Britain and France are fighting, mm-hmm. Yep, there's a reason. There it is, Zane got it, Napoleonic Wars. The Napoleonic Wars are gonna be a big source of tension and the French Revolution. Those two things together are gonna make it really difficult for the young nation to navigate these waters and kind of exert some influence here. So let's keep going. All right, French Revolution. There's David Diggs, I love him. Um, how does the French Revolution really create the first political parties, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans? So this is where I always, my students get confused. The Federalists and Anti-Federalists are only arguing about the ratification of the Constitution. Once that Constitution is ratified, there's no more Anti-Federalist argument, it's done, right? Once, especially once that Bill of Rights is added in 1791. So really our first true political parties in the sense of this word is gonna be because of the French Revolution. And they're gonna argue over what side should we be? Now, we know, uh, Hamilton fans, you know, that Alexander Hamilton and the Federalists were really pushing to Britain is the future. That's where we need to align, right? And Hamilton is gonna write his report on manufacturers, his report on public credit, and he's gonna say, look, they're the future. Business is the future. Trading is the future. That's what we need to focus on. You got your Thomas Jefferson, who is gonna say, no, 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 no. France helped us, we need to stand by them. I know they rolled the guillotine out, just look the other way, right? Sometimes revolutions get messy. Um, we still need to stand by them and be their the strong friend and ally. And you know, so that's what he, and he also says, business is not the future, 
yeoman farmers of the future, those who are doing things with their hands, right? Which is also funny that Jefferson is saying that. And of course, in the musical, there's this great exchange there. We know who's really doing the planting. Of course, Jefferson enslaving hundreds of people in Monticello uh, does seem a, a wee bit hypocritical on that. But what, what we're, these two different visions of America are going to be what kind of creates these two different political parties. And the, the next question that my students always ask is, which one's the Democrats and the Republicans today? And I say, neither, okay? Um, it is a long and winding road to get to our current political parties, which by the way, there is nothing in the constitution saying we should have political parties, zero. It's this weird tradition that sort of emerges, even though Washington warned us, didn't he, in his farewell address, which he actually didn't really say out loud. It was printed um, in classic Washington South. And Washington was very careful. He knew the world was watching him. He knew history had its eyes on him. He was very careful to exercise restraints, but also to use it when necessary. Say the Whiskey Rebellion, right? When it looked like this might be another shades. This might be another situation. We got the frontier rising up. We're upset about this whiskey tax, some popular tax. And Washington goes, oh, no, you don't, right? I'm going to send federal troops out there. The Constitution works. So he's not afraid to use the power when it's necessary, but he's very careful not to exceed the limits of his power. He actually makes notes in his copy of the Constitution in the margins. I love it. I love it. In his farewell address, he blames, um, sorry, I'm trying to get my dog to stop barking. Um, he warned us, he warned us, he warned us about really two major things. There's a lot in there, but the two that tend to get the excerpts that are used, he warns us to beware of the baneful spirit of party. Here's where I go, gestures wildly at the world around us, right? And he also urged Americans not to ally too closely with European nations. I think he's seeing the writing on the wall with Britain and France and he's like, play them off each other, okay? No permanent entangling alliances. But here comes Napoleon. When that French Revolution, that reign of terror kind of hits up and then we get the directory and now Napoleon comes into play, this is gonna be really, really difficult. So John Adams, who I, I have some teacher friends who adore John Adams, he's their favorite. <laughs> but during this period, I think a lot of people, I'm quoting the, the king there, President John Adams, good luck. He was, Washington's a tough act to follow. And I think he, he tries, but there's gonna be some super unpopular things happening in the Adams presidency. For instance, some of these unpopular federalist taxes like the whiskey tax. And then just that XYZ affair and how he gets caught between Britain and France, right? XYZ, so France is super upset with Jay's treaty when we signed a treaty with England to finally kind of get the English to abandon their forts they were supposed to abandon back in 1783. But the whole theme here is no one They're like, look at this country, right? This country, they're gonna fall apart. So when Jay's treaty is signed, the French are gonna be furious. Because you say, wait a second, you have a neutrality treaty with us. We helped you win that war. Now you're signing treaties with England. It's going to intensify. It's going to intensify that. This is a slow, steady build. Okay. We see that XYZ affair where the French are demanding bribes to even talk to the United States. They're not viewing us as a legitimate country. This is where we get that unofficial war, that quasi war with France. So we also see some unpopular federal laws like the alien targeting people of French descent who live over here, right? And, and making it illegal to speak out against the president. This is where James Madison, writer of the Bill of Rights is like, ah! and so Jefferson and Madison team up to write the Kentucky Virginia Resolves, which are really the foundation of this idea that the states should have the right to just ignore a federal law. What, what will happen is when we see Napoleon take over, a lot of this will kind of 
this, and also when Jefferson wins in 1800, he'll allow these unpopular laws to expire. So the issue will fizzle out for now, but it's gonna lay dormant beneath the surface. We're gonna see this keep coming up of can the states really just say nah to the federal government? Can they do that? You know, and this is that first effort of them to really try and do that. So why is the election of 1800 so significant? Yeah, I put, um, hmm, funny we should talk about this right now, isn't it? The, I think this is why it's called the Revolution of 1800. It is our first transfer of power from one party to another. And that election was nasty, folks. It was nasty. It was, it was mudslinging, um, just as we'll see in 1824 and especially 1828. But there is a peaceful transfer of power. Now, not to say John Adams isn't a little bit um, of a weasel on his way out. We'll talk about what he does with the courts packing the courts with federalists, which drives Jefferson crazy. But it is a peaceful transfer of power. And that has been something that has been the bedrock of our system since 1800. So that is something that is such a big value for us, something that's important to us, something we really hold dear in this democracy. And we know, okay, there have been four elections where the person who won the popular vote did not become the president. It's happened four times. But there's always been a peaceful transfer of power. And that is pretty important. The other thing that we'll see is this moves us towards the 12th Amendment, which will change the person who's the vice president from being the one who comes in second, because yeah, awkward, right? Um, to the way we have it now, where you actually run as a team. All right. How do we see, I'm running out of time. I keep talking. I love this period. How do you see usually period three on the, on the usual exam? Um, period three can be your DBQ. Game on. So you want to be ready for it. Expect again, one to two sets of stimulus-based multiple choice questions, so seven, eight questions, and one short answer option or LEQ option to cover topics in period three. And all right, what, here comes our poll. What do you think is the most significant issue remaining unfinished by 1800? What would you say? Because the American Revolution is, as some historians like Gordon would say, the most radical one we've seen. However, other historians say, yeah, but there's still a lot left undone, right? There's a lot left undone. What do you think? The most significant issue remaining unfinished. Get your final votes in. Here they come, here they come, we're getting close. All right, there's definitely a clear winner in this one. There it is, equality not guaranteed for all people in the new United States. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, those other ones are also important as well, but I think that's the one that we're gonna see um, being as historian Alfred Young has this great way of looking at it. He calls it the ghosts of the American revolution that are gonna be hanging over our heads, right? That we say these and write these tremendous words in these documents, but it's gonna be not fully reached for everyone for a long time. Or you can argue we're still working on it, aren't we? Still trying to make sure that we live up to the ideals in these founding documents. So, oh well, wait, I don't know if I can show. There, now you're seeing. Yep, that's the one that most of you picked. I kind of agree. I'm with you on that. All right, I'm new at the polls. Here we go. Okay, questions. Did I save enough time? I talked a little bit too much, but hopefully it's okay. You were totally fine, Sarah. And sorry, I had to lose the cat mask as I was like giving the tech stuff. I was like, I can't breathe. Them, so <laughs> you just get this mug. Um, feel free to continue dropping questions in the Q&A, you guys. Um, Hector was wondering, can you elaborate on the three-fifths compromise and social contract? On those 
two things or I would say they're two different things. Yeah. Um, so the three-fifths compromise is the one that they were trying to figure out representation of how to count enslaved people in their population because they were, of course, setting up the idea of having a House of Representatives based on population. And the states where, remember, there was still slavery in almost every state at this point. Very few states had completely banned it. Um, some will as a result of the revolution, but slavery existed in most parts of the country at this moment in time. However, it had become much more ingrained in the Chesapeake and Southern colonies because of the cash crops um, and the labor intensive crops. So not surprisingly, a lot of people from those states, a lot of the delegates wanted to count all their enslaved people as part of their population so they can get more voices in the House of Representatives. And of course, the states where slavery wasn't as much of a factor were very much against that idea. So three-fifths is very arbitrary. And of course, as we know now, very dumb. But it was really the only number they could agree on. And it's a compromise in any, every sense of the word that they, they said, well, we'll count enslaved three-fifths of a human so that they, um, that's how we'll count the representation for your state. So from the Northern perspective, a lot of those, those states up there like Connecticut who were pushing against this said, well, I can live with that, right? I can live, I don't like it. They'd rather them not count them at all. Um, and the Southern states were like, well, I can live with that too. It's still gonna give us a bump and a boost in our representation. But, but many of the representatives from the delegations from um, states where slavery was not as well, not as much used, we're saying the obvious fact is, wait a second, you're not allowing these people to have any rights at all, any freedoms, but you wanna count them in your population. So what is, either they are people or they're not, right? And so it was um, kind of an embarrassing compromise, but the best they felt they could do in that moment. And it's one we'll have to obviously fix. Um, social contract is really the idea that is um, first laid out, I believe, and I gotta double check this, I'm pretty sure it's John Locke first and then Rousseau writes the social contract. European AP Euro people, you can quote me, you can check me on that. But this is the idea that I know for sure Locke talks a lot about this and it's one that, that Jefferson incorporates in the declaration that if a leader violates their unwritten contract to essentially be a good leader, if they are violating that, then you have the rights to alter or abolish that government, you have the right to rebel. And so this is really the foundation of the declaration, right? In that preamble, it says, look, we, and then they say, we have 27 grievances, right? He has, he has, he has, he's done all these things wrong. We have tried, we have asked, we have petitioned. And therefore we have no choice but to overthrow your government and, and establish a new one. So they were really trying to, and I think again, it's because they weren't sure they were gonna win. Right? And they wanted to clearly explain why they were doing what they were doing in case that all went wrong and they all got hanged. I mean, that was a very real possibility. So social contract is a real foundational idea in the revolution. Cool. Um, Marco was wondering, what is uh, what would you consider the biggest takeaway from the Articles of Confederation? Mm, they're a nice first try. Um, they do allow for certain things to happen. For instance, a treaty to be signed. Um, they do allow for the Northwest Ordinance, which I forgot to mention, which will um, essentially go into play in 18, 1787, sets up how to be a state. So it allows for some steps towards government, that Northwest Territory, um, which is where I am right now, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, um, Illinois, Wisconsin, and, and setting the Ohio River as the boundary of enslavement and freedom. 
And it's a good first attempt, but I think they go too opposite in the direction of being afraid of having one person take over that really there was no one in charge. And in order to amend the articles, you had to have every state on board. And uh, again, I'm looking at you, Rhode Island. Rhode Island was always like, nope, not doing it. Cause that's just what Rhode Island does. They were always the ones standing in the way it seemed. And so they just couldn't get any, they couldn't change it. And that no power to tax is big because states are then putting taxes against other states that they're annoyed with, right? There's no common currency. So there's just sort of a snowball effect that is a nice first try. It's a confederation, they're at least working together. But I think they all kind of came to the point where Hamilton really pushes this in Madison and the Federalist Papers that you need that federal to unite, right? If we're gonna have a republic, you need the national to unite. And that way it allows for growth and the states can still do to an extent, some things that matter more to them, but that national will be what unites us. Awesome. Um, Mai has a great question here. While Hamilton is a great musical, do you think it is a little dangerous because it romanticizes the founding fathers and kind of ignores all the wrong things they did? Good question. Yes, and I think even Lynn has talked a little bit about this um, because it came out 2015, 2016. And I think um, things have changed since then, right? I think we're much more kind of in this moment where we're having a reckoning and looking at our foundations. And, um, and, and Lynn has even said, this isn't everything. Please don't take this as everything. In fact, fans out there, you know, there was a cabinet battle number three that got cut from the final musical and it was all about slavery. Um, so yeah, there is, there is a lot there that is downplayed maybe. I mean, there's a brief moment where at the Battle of Yorktown, where it, where it even kind of says a little bit about Washington, where it says black and white soldiers wondered if this would be, oh, I can't remember the quote, but he says, not yet, right? So it's, yeah, you wanna be careful just like you do with movies and TV shows. They're, they're not historical. Sorry, you're a little muted, Sarah, what'd you say? Oh, sorry. Um, I said, you, you wanna be careful with Hamilton as you do with any movie or TV show based on a historical event. And always remember that it is entertainment first, right? And it's not citation, it's not scholarly journal. So yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Cool. Um, thanks for the question, Mike. Uh, Noemi was wondering, what was the role of the Native Americans during the Revolutionary War? What were the key ways that the war affected them? Mm, good question. Um, so the Native Americans, remember during the French and Indian War, I kind of mentioned that a lot of the, the different indigenous groups were trying to figure out which side to fight for, right? So I'll use the Algonquins as the example that I gave before. The Algonquins sided with the French in the French and Indian War, and they chose poorly, right? So then what we saw the Algonquin leadership do, and the Iroquois had sided with the British. So then the Algonquins will kind of make the decision to side with the, the British in the revolution. Uh, which also does not work out well. So it's, it's gonna be another thing that will kind of further divide. Um, and here's where I'm just gonna say that I don't know a whole lot more specifics than that. So I don't wanna say, I don't wanna misspeak, um, but it will further divide the groups that are over here. It makes it, and we'll see this as we approach the War of 1812 um, with the Shawnee and Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa. And we'll see, it's this constant trying to figure out in this moment, and it, it's different for every group, right? They're trying to figure out in this moment, in our spot, what is best for us? How can we survive? How can we try to maintain some semblance of sovereignty? Um, and so it's going to be very different, difficult for them. They, they have to pick and choose the side. So it's very different. That's a big question. Um, I would have to get more specific. And honestly, I would probably have to do some more research on how it affected various groups all over. I just know the ones that had to come up um, being the Iroquois.
Exploit Confederacy is one that tends to come up quite a bit with the French and Indian War and the Algonquins. That's the one I'm familiar with. But more than that, I would need to get back to you on. Noted. All right, awesome. I think we got time for a couple more. Um, if Washington was a Federalist, how was it valid for him to argue against political parties? But uh, yeah, Washington, I think he was a Federalist reluctantly. Um, he, he did not, yeah, he, Washington didn't even want to be president. I mean, they had to talk him into it, you know? And, and he was very hesitant and very reluctant. And I think he saw what was already starting to happen. And he saw the divisiveness and he saw how it was, like you said, the baneful spirit, how it was going to be something that would pull apart. And I think so that is more, and I, I think we see this today, right? I think there's people that um, are frustrated with the parties for different reasons, the, our two main parties, and, and are trying to figure out, is there a way out of the situation, right? This polarization. I think Washington was having that same kind of conversation in his head, like recognizing parties are becoming a thing that is hard to undo, especially with the electoral college and the way that you have to get, today it's 270 to win. It's very difficult to do that from a third party or no party, right? But I think Washington is still saying, we need to be careful. Like this is not, there is nothing in the constitution saying it has to be this way. And Washington's like, we should move away from it. You know, he was not comfortable with it at all. Gotcha. Um, this might be a related question, but I feel like it's really salient for today. Why was the constitution left vague in some instances? Ah, uh, yes. Oh yeah, they, it was deliberate. It was very deliberate that it was vague. Um, and again, when I have my students, they actually read Madison's notes, not the whole thing. It's like, that's thick. I pull some excerpts from them and they see the amount of arguing that went on behind those doors. I mean, they were, these are, you know, you gotta figure these are 50 plus type A personalities, smart guys, but all have their own agenda. And, and a lot of them are just not willing to budge. And, Shay's rebellion, that ghost of Shay's is hanging over them. And it was a very real fact that the United States might fall apart, you know, but in just a few years after we, we won. And that fear had them a little bit cave, well, a lot cave on some things, absolutely, in the name of expediency, in the name of let's just get this document, we have to get this document. You especially see that coming up in August and September. They're like, we just got to do it. Come on, we've been here three months. We have to hurry, right? Let's just do it. Let's just do it and fix it later. And let's make it 1808. Um, and, and we'll worry about that later. So it's, I think that fear that this all might fall apart and be for naught was very much something that allowed them to put those very vague and very frustrating compromises in the constitution that will really just cause more problems later. You know? Totally. Awesome. Well, it is 12.59, so I think we are about done. My colleague is going to drop the link to the attendance quiz in the chat. Um, if everyone can please watch period for this video before next Saturday, that would be awesome. And a video of this, as well as the link to attendance and uh, some additional resources are going to be posted on the course webpage in the next few days. So I hope everyone has a spooky Halloween as much as you want it to be spooky. Um, any closing words, Sarah, before we head out for the day? Just, yeah, stay safe out there. Be careful. Have some fun. You know, I know it's a weird one, but hopefully you're all able to have a little fun tonight in some way, shape, or form. Totally. Well, you too. And yeah, all right. Until next week then. All have right. Happy weekend, guys. Thanks. Bye. Happy weekend. Thank you, everybody.